it's really expensive to build at the edge. So affordability is not what you're gonna get by opening up an urban growth boundary. Where you actually have equitable development and affordable development is when you put transit-oriented development as close to transit investments so that you're gonna both have affordable workforce housing as well as options to actually get to your job get to education, get to your health care. Without those types of uh, developments happening in our region, we will create an inaccessible region, an inequitable region. So everybody's going to have to figure out how to you know, see their neighborhood as slightly different. From the studios of Kink Radio, it's the Portland 50, a podcast series about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The Portland 50 series is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. I'm your host, Peggy LaPointe. Today, I talk with Lynn Peterson. Lynn is a transportation engineer and a land use expert. She started in public service as a Lake Oswego City Councilor and Clackamas County Commission Chairperson. Lynn has also worked in the administrations of two governors. In January, Lynn Peterson takes over as the new president of Metro, the area's regional government. When I was 12, I decided that I wanted to be a civil engineer, highway design uh-huh. and construction. And at 19, I decided, uh, after I started work at Wisconsin Department of Transportation doing highway design and construction, that uh, I wanted to be a secretary of the Department of Transportation someday. Wow. So it was a very specific goal and got sidelined into all of this um, public service and on the elected side because I was not happy with the way we were making decisions about how we use our transportation investment and what that transportation investment actually looks like on the ground, whether it's actually helping or hurting communities. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a journey to figure out how do you actually use transportation investments to benefit the community, whether you're going through it or to it. Mm -hmm. Now, we are both Wisconsinites. We are. Uh, We discovered that early on. Uh, You and I met when I was at TriMet, and you must have been at that point uh, Clackamas County Chairwoman. I think that's the timing. Okay. Uh, Maybe it was with Governor Kitzhaber. I don't recall. But... So our paths have crossed um, that way. And so I know you as a transportation person. But, I mean, at 12 years old, uh, I have a 12-year-old son. And to have that idea and such focus, what, what was it about that that, you, that that really captured your attention? I could be flippant and say I love concrete. <laughs> um, but it's... Honestly, I wanted to build a concrete swimming pool for my Barbies in the backyard, Mm -hmm. right, around a little younger than that. But it's uh, the ability to build stuff. I think that comes from uh, growing up in the Midwest is you do it yourself, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. I was told I could wear whatever I wanted as long as I made it. Mm. I could build whatever I wanted as long as I built it. Uh, I was allowed to have that kind of creativity. Mm -hmm. Um, It was good, uh, good learning yeah. In order to have the confidence that you can do anything. Anything you want. Yeah. Anything you set your mind to. Yeah. So you went to University of Wisconsin-Madison, right? Correct. For, and, and for civil and environmental engineering. engineering. And then from Wisconsin, did you come right out to Oregon or were you in other places doing other things? 
Uh, no, this was one of the five places in the United States that my husband could get a job. Mm-hmm. He's an optics engineer, and because of Tektronics and all of the spinoffs, it's a very optical-oriented, high-tech cluster. Yeah. And there are only five places in, in the nation, and it just happened that I got into planning school here. I had no idea it was the planning mecca. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, and so in your roles as Lake Oswego City Councilor, um, Clackamas County Chairwoman, Transportation Advisor to Governor Kitzhaber, and uh, Director of Washington Department of Transportation. All of those years of experience, what are some of the things that you've taken away that you've been surprised by um, or learned about? In in that time, I think that what has stuck with me the most about Oregon, about this region, is that we have a fundamental understanding that citizen engagement is not a risk, mm. that it's actually risky not to do citizen engagement and community engagement and actually listen to people. Yeah. I think we've been getting a little away from that, and uh, we need to re-engage those roots. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's an important thing when you look around the country and decisions are made without that investment in time and energy to understand what's actually going on in the community, why they need an investment, what are the solutions. Otherwise, you're making a lot of assumptions. And uh, what we've done really well here, and people will say it slowed down the process. It doesn't need to, uh, but it, it it, it is something that was never taught to me in engineering school. And it is now what I teach nationwide to other departments of transportation mm-hmm. is how to engage the community. It's not a risk. It's riskier not to. Yeah. And what is the takeaway that you've seen from them through that process of discovering that idea that engaging with your community is beneficial in many ways? Well, not to disparage engineers because I am a trained engineer, <laughs> uh, but they are usually introverts. Yeah, true. Uh, when they're doing science, engineering, and math, they're very focused on on the problem. Uh, What we usually do, though, with our engineers is that we usually give them the wrong problem statement because we haven't actually thought through what what the problem actually is. Mm -hmm. They will solve for whatever problem you give them. Part of what uh, the training is is to make sure that they've done their round robin of listening and poking at the problem statement to see if it's really true for everybody that needs to be engaged from Mm -hmm. the ground level all the way up to their legislators. They need to poke at that. They need to prod. There's, there's no perfect problem statement, but you need, to, you need to make it really good or you end up increasing risk through your entire project where you might not even build the project because it was fundamentally the wrong thing. Right. Uh, the solutions then play out from that problem statement. Mm-hmm. One of the, the, the key things that we've learned going around is that uh, many engineers uh, will actually Google Earth their project or drive through it, but they will never have experienced the actual community itself. So when we get them out and we put them into a pretend project and we make them walk or take transit through and experience it as an individual in a wheelchair or as experience it as somebody who is blind or somebody who's just going to church on Sunday, Mm -hmm. they suddenly realize that accessibility is a key problem. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether you're driving, you're on the bus, it doesn't matter what mode, they suddenly realize how inaccessible the actual community has become. Mm-hmm. And it, 
has totally opened their eyes, whether it be Caltrans down in L.A. in a neighborhood that has been cut through with major transportation projects after major transportation projects. The maintenance engineer was like, oh, my gosh, I had no idea what problem we were creating for people just trying to cross our on and off ramps because they were only paving the main line of the highway repaving it. They weren't doing the on and off ramps in an attempt to save money. What happened then is all that asphalt was being smushed to the side and creating this giant bump at the end of every ADA ramp that they had created so that somebody could roll their wheelchair down, right? Or even if you're, (laughs) they would just end up at basically a speed bump at the bottom of it. Hmm. Like, that's not good. We got to stop that. We got to figure out how to not let that happen. But if they hadn't walked the project, they would have never understood the basic fundamental inaccessibility that they were creating. Oh, good, good. Yeah, you get them out of their element. So with all of this experience behind you, what made you decide to then get into the ring for Metro Council President? What was it about the job that you thought, this is something I want to uh, attack, if you will? When I came back from Washington State three years ago, Uh, this region had fundamentally changed. So the amazing economic growth that we've had that a lot of us have benefited from, many of us have not, uh, has left us with, uh, we have become unaffordable and congested, Mm -hmm. which is also an an inaffordability issue as well for, if that's a word. Because there's no boundaries to it, Metro's the place to tackle that. Mm -hmm. And uh, TriMet right there is a partner as well as the Port and um, Department of Transportation, the State Department of Transportation. Those entities as a whole can tackle our system. And we haven't been tackling the system as a whole. We've been doing spot improvements here and there for decades. Mm -hmm. I was taught uh, as a young planner that we would do five miles of light rail every five years. Hmm. And incrementally it would build up into a system. It did. We have a wonderful light rail system. Yeah. But we only have two or three corridors that have benefited from that light rail system with a full-on system-wide approach with housing and making it a beautiful place aesthetically, artistically. It's made it more accessible, but then the rest of the region has ended with, up with no investment whatsoever. Yeah. So how do we, on a borderless issue, start to tackle these problems that we're having and get back to what met- the metro region was when I moved here in 93? which was affordable Mm -hmm. and accessible. Yeah. So, you know, when you start to look at it that way, I also worked at Metro 20 years ago doing travel demand forecasting. It's where I learned how to do the modeling here. It's where I learned how to do scenario uh, modeling and scenario discussion, which has led to a lot of other parts of my life uh, so that you don't ever take one solution as the given solution. You have to look at a whole range of ideas. Mm -hmm. And usually you come up with a hybrid of a whole bunch of really good ideas so that's why I, I really thought this was this is where I needed to be now to have the most impact to at least make sure that if we don't slow down the rate of change, mm-hmm. we actually can move the needle back by strategically investing both in affordable housing mm-hmm. and on transportation investments. So what do you think of the challenges that Metro faces for the next four to eight years? Next four to eight years. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, after November 6th, we will be uh, implementing the affordable housing bond measure uh, and putting down 3,900 units with our county housing authorities as partners. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be a big dent, but it won't be 
enough to right. solve the problem. So I think we're going to need to say what's next. Mm-hmm. And part of what's next is how do we keep this place green? How do we keep it affordable? And how do we keep it uh, livable in terms of the congestion issues and economically vibrant? So we're going to have to sit down and think about what are the next set of investments that this region needs to make. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a lot to tackle. And uh, you and I came to Portland around the same time, and we've both seen the changes. And I look at my neighborhood, which is a nice middle-class neighborhood, and then I look at the houses going up, and I think to myself, I wouldn't be able to afford to live here if I was just now trying to buy a house. So it's a shame that others can't enjoy what we did when they come to town. So that's certainly going to be a huge uh, challenge on your plate. Now, Metro as a whole, uh, because we want to talk about Metro and what Metro does. And it wasn't until I bought that house, actually, that I started to look at what Metro does, because, you know, then you're looking at where your tax dollars are going. And you're looking at, that was right around the time that David Bragdon, actually shortly thereafter, David Bragdon became the first Metro president. Metro does a lot. You know, we talked about this before the microphones went on. If you look at everything that it covers, some of the smaller things, and I say that with quotation marks, you know, Oregon Zoo um, manages Oregon Convention Center, the Expo Center, Portland Five. Those are some of the smaller ones. But then there are, you know, the bigger issues as far as urban planning and growth and transportation and and waste. Looking back at, you know, sort of the origins, I discovered things I didn't know. It was a Metropolitan Service District from 1957 to 66, 66 to 78, Columbia Region Association of Courts. But then present-day Metro came about in 1978. Mm-hmm. And do you know the origins behind that, behind what was sort of the idea of Metro and why we needed it? So in some way, shape, or form, this idea of uh, a regional government mm-hmm. out of the good governance work that was done all the way back to 1924. Uh, Going back to earlier conversations, very early conversations about the city of Portland and Multnomah County actually collapsing into one governmental authority. There was this discussion about a regional government dealing with regional issues. And I love, on one hand, the idea um, that the League of Women Voters and uh, Portland City Club and uh, basically that the suburbs were interested Mm -hmm. in reducing the power of Portland (laughs) um, (laughs) or perceived power of Portland at that time uh, and and having a regional authority. But it was a whole compilation of things happening at the same time that led to this epiphany to actually have the first and only elected regional government. So the Metropolitan Service District actually had already, they had regionalized waste management, Mm -hmm. and they had put the zoo into that uh, as well. So the city of Portland moved the zoo over into the Metropolitan Service District, and then uh, federal law had required us to have some sort of planning authority, uh, regional planning authority, and that was the Columbia River Association of Governments. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until 1978, after the League of Women Voters started to dig into this and make some recommendations on issues that had no borders in the region that, that that the idea of Metro came up. Yeah. And as you mentioned, it is the only elected regional government. And that's kind of bewildering in a way, if you think about it. 
Are there any other similar types of regional governments around the country that you are aware of? Yeah, you know, every every region in this country uh, of, of substantial population, 250,000 and mm-hmm. above, has to have a metropolitan planning organization, the MPO. Mm-hmm. So they all have that portion, but how they decided to govern themselves was usually a council of government. So it would be representatives of each of the agency cities uh, within that region. And that's how the majority of all the MPOs in the, re- in the nation work. It's a really hard thing to manage up in Puget Sound region. As you can imagine, there are 52 people at the table. Oh, wow. So to get anything done, it's done by an executive committee, which is essentially uh, the same size as the Metro Council, a very small group of folks who start to move an agenda. Uh, And as you can also imagine, it's really hard to get onto that executive committee (laughs) with 52 members. So... That, that's true in every in every place. The closest form of government is Minneapolis-St. Paul. Instead of a council of governments, they have uh, a group of individuals that are appointed by the governor mm-hmm. to deal with regional issues. And so here in, uh, in the Portland metro region, we have the council president and six district, district councilors that um, come up for a vote every four or six years? Four years. Four years, that's right. The last one... Was in November, right? Because I, I think in my district we had somebody come up for a vote. So there you go. You are now the president-elect for Metro. And there are some areas that, that people are familiar with. I know in my role in the Recycling Information Hotline, people are aware. Actually, now that I think of it, some of the time, not all the time, uh, <laughs> uh, what Metro is and what Metro does. But, you know, the, tra- the waste uh, side of it, the transfer stations and the hazardous waste. But urban growth boundary is probably what people think about the most when they think of Portland. And so the urban growth boundary idea came from? 1973, Senate Bill 100, the Oregon <laughs> Land Use Planning Program. Uh, it required uh, that every jurisdiction, every city in the entire state zone basically inside their urban growth boundary, urban zoning, Mm -hmm. and then in the counties and state-owned land, it would be rural forest or farmland. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's where the urban growth boundary came from, is the idea that we would protect our farm and forest land and zone it farm or forest so that it was not taxed or would ever be taxed at the value or perceived value of what its urban potential was, so that it allowed the farmer to stay on his farm or her to stay on her farm. And so that's why the, the Oregon Land Use Planning Program was created. The fact that Metro was then uh, created in 1978, they gave that over to Metro to start working on. It wasn't actually adopted in its final form until the late 80s. And then it wasn't until the late 90s that we actually figured out that we were sprawling within that urban growth boundary. And so how do we, how do we have a different conversation about how we grow? And it was right then around the time I was working at Metro that we were having the conversation about the 2040 mm-hmm. growth concept, the 50-year plan at yeah. that time, which is fastly approaching. Right. And uh, we, we said, as Metro, we surveyed every, every household in the region, said, do you want to grow up? Do you want to grow out? Mm-hmm. Or do you want to do a little bit of both? Yeah. And the overwhelming you know, survey results was we want to we do both. Mm-hmm. We want some more density. But we'd really like to, you know, continue to make communities whole in some way at the edge. Uh, so that has been the continued tension 
between uh, the inside the urban growth boundary city of Portland first ring suburbs about how to make them vibrant Mm -hmm. for the long run and not lose population to the sprawl at the edge. But then the communities at the edge, like even King City right now, has a proposal for uh, urban growth boundary expansion so that they can actually complete their community because they started out as a senior living type of community and have morphed into a full service community, but they don't really have a downtown. They would really like to have a downtown. They would really like to have those kind of amenities and and have their their civic center. Mm -hmm. How how do we do that along with the housing that they feel that they need, along with the employment? One thing that I've seen that Metro seems to do well is something that you brought up early in the conversation, and that's that public engagement. I think TriMet does a really good job at that as well. Uh, I was involved in a lot of that, the open houses and such. And so through these public engagements, you've probably been in sitting in on a lot of these just to get sort of, you know, hearing what people are wanting. What is your takeaway from all of from from all of this as far as urban growth boundary? It's has has that changed? I know you said that people want to grow out and up, but how much of that has changed in the last five years as we have seen in neighborhoods? You know, folks who have been there a while who are, you know, not happy at all the bulldozing going on. At that level, I think that there is a national versus, uh, not a national, it's a national and a Pacific Northwest, West Coast population affordability issue yeah. that we don't control with the urban growth boundary. Yeah. Uh, the urban growth boundary is a 20-year land supply. Mm-hmm. It's looked at every five years. We can dicker about whether it's an 18-year land supply or a 15-year land supply or a 22-year land supply, depending on what assumptions you make. Uh, and that's the kind of debate that we end up having as yeah. well. Is that enough land or is that too much land? However, the, 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 the issues that we're facing are it's really expensive to build at the edge. So mm-hmm. affordability is not what you're going to get by opening up an urban growth boundary. Where you actually have equitable development and affordable development is when you put transit-oriented development as close to transit investments so that you're going to both have affordable workforce housing as well as options to actually get to your job, get to education, get to your health care. Without those types of uh, developments happening in our region, we will create an inaccessible region, an inequitable region. So everybody's going to have to figure out how to you know, see their neighborhood as slightly different. Our neighborhood uh, in Lake Oswego has a, has a very interesting downtown first edition transition that we do from the backside of the neighborhood all the way into Main Street where it increases in density. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of neighborhoods have seen that as they get closer to McLaughlin or Powell, right? How do we start allowing for some of that density that we need so that we can actually have uh, accessible communities and take advantage of the infrastructure that we already have? Yeah. Uh, how, how do we do that? And how do we make it so that those neighborhoods feel like they s- still are intact community, mm-hmm. but have welcomed new people in as well? I think that that, that is a definite tension. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the city of Portland's work on the residential infill program, how do we do more accessory dwelling units? How do we do duplexes? How do we do triplexes? Versus how do we do higher density maybe on our corridors like McLaughlin or Powell or 82nd, 122nd? Those are the conversations I think that are still playing out in the region. 
You're listening to Kink's Portland 50 series. I'll continue my conversation with Lynn Peterson in a moment, but I wanted to thank our sponsor. The Portland 50 series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Now back to my conversation with Lynn Peterson. Lynn is a transportation engineer and a land use expert. She started in public service as a Lake Oswego City Councilor and Clackamas County Commission Chairperson. Lynn has also worked in the administrations of two governors. In January, Lynn Peterson takes over as the new president of Metro, the area's regional government. Well, and if you travel to other big metro regions, you know, I think of Minneapolis in particular because I've got sisters there and I visit there every year. And I think about how they're set up. And at the end of the day, I see them in their cars a lot uh, just to get to the simplest things like grocery stores and schools. And, and, and then I think of my life here and how I've got a couple of grocery stores within walking distance and, you know, my kids bike and bus to school. And yeah, it's, it is more expensive in many ways both monetarily and time-wise to be, to have that. Sorry, I'm having like this conversation in my head as you're talking. Um, but yeah, it's it's sort of, you know, something that will be a type rope that we walk forever in Portland. But the, the beauty of it is I also have a sister in Minneapolis-St. Paul <laughs> region who lives at the very edge and spends uh, most of her time uh, commuting into work uh, into Minneapolis downtown. But um and has the same issues about the amount of time spent in traffic. There is a lot of this region that has that same problem. Yeah, there really is. And we really need to recognize that and kind of embrace. So where are they starting from? And this is the beauty of being at Metro. It's the beauty of having uh, been a Clackamas County Mm -hmm. commissioner and a city councilor in a suburban community is that you really need to start from where those folks are. And how do I make your life better by 10 to 20% there Mm -hmm. versus 10 to 20% in, in the city of Portland or one of the first ring suburbs, right? It's where you are on the growth curve and how you developed, you, you, have, to, you have to say, I, I want to extend the bus as yeah. far out to Forest Grove as I can because there are people in our region who need that alternative. And, and TV Highway, there are communities along TV Highway between what seems like the, the core urban development on the, on the west side and Forest Grove very low-income communities, and they are crossing TV Highway with no lights at night, no safe crossings to get to the bus stop on the other side, which is in a ditch. Mm-hmm. Right, so we have not we have not invested in the options for these communities, and we have not invested in the both the options on transportation, but also the options on on affordable housing. So, I think just starting where they're at and saying, okay, how do ma- how do I make your life better? And some of it might be road related vehicular capacity because it's just not working. But a lot of it needs to be, how do we make it more multimodal? And how do we make that cost effective? So it's, it's marrying all these ideas up and, and along with, you shouldn't have to drive 20 to 30 minutes to get to the nearest shopping mm. mall, right? So I need, I, I need to have that conversation with the jurisdiction. So what are your plans to get those kind of services closer to these communities and can we densify it at the same time so that we actually increase the number of people yeah. and, and increase the market share so that, you know, Trader Joe's wants to move in. And so Metro's role in helping all of this happen 
is working with these jurisdictions. Out of uh, coordination, collaboration. Right. And so not just with the, you know, how, how we grow as far as buildings and such, but transportation. There's a partnership there with TriMet as well. Mm-hmm. So much going through my head um, because Metro, like I said, you know, like I mentioned earlier, covers so much. So what are, we've got the 2040 plan, which means, you know, the next plan is going to, is obviously in the works now is how, how we grow. What, what are some of the things besides, not besides, I mean, which is huge, getting, getting transportation, getting bus and max to, to these outlying communities. But what are the challenges that we face that Metro is going to be tackling? That's a good question. So I think, again, the, the question is going to be, if we are all in agreement, or at least a vast majority of us, a consensus, uh, that the 2040 growth concept, which was to grow uh, out, but also up, to do a little bit of both, uh, is still the consensus, then how do we serve those communities? How do we serve those communities now? Because they needed, they needed investment five to 10 years ago. So we're already very much behind. And a lot of folks, uh, I know, feel like, you know, they pay enough gas tax. We all feel like we pay enough tax, right? But uh, the gas tax that is so far behind in being able to keep up with the needs, that that's why we've basically not done much mm-hmm. on our roads in a very long time because the cities and counties, what they got from the gas tax didn't even pay for maintenance. Yeah. It, it paid for, let's just say, 60 to 70 percent of the actual needs. So they kept falling further and further behind. And when you let a road get further and further behind, it means that you actually have to rebuild the entire road, costing much, much more. So that's kind of where we're at right now is we let that all happen. So our maintenance needs are completely and utterly overwhelming. It's why, you know, everybody wants their pothole filled first before Mm -hmm. you do anything else. So if you just look at it that way, everybody was squirreling away their maintenance money into maintenance uh, and there was no money left over for actual projects. So the question, I think, for the future is how does this region start to solve some of its region-wide problems that in collaboration, in coordination with TriMet, with uh, the Department of Transportation at the state level, with our individual cities on these roads that we don't even think about maybe during our commute. We think about, well, we need to fix I-5. We need to fix 26, 217, I-205, 84. We think about those. But where we have the capacity to move more people and to house more people are actually on our arterials. So when we're talking about Barber, we do have a light rail project planned for the future does not have funding yet, uh, but it would it would be able to move more people and move and, and house more people and actually help I-5, right? It helps that entire corridor move more efficiently so we can get more trucks through. We need to look at all of our arterials. Now, they're not all going to get light rail, and, and neither are they ready to have light rail. They might not even want it, but right. what they all want is more transit service. Transit service isn't going to actually move more people as efficiently as we'd want unless there's actual signal priority. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they're just stuck in traffic. So I think for the future, it's how do we make our corridors work more efficiently and move more people and more tons of freight, even if it's just the tons of freight that are moving around because you're getting your Amazon delivered. But that has to be way more efficient within the region. Those highways, we can only do so much. Yeah, there's only you can't add more lanes and more lanes. To actually make our room. communities work, Adding, adding capacity to the highways 
doesn't actually get us to where we want to go for the future. So we're going to need to really focus on those arterials. Those arterials are mostly owned by the State Department of Transportation. They are not owned by our counties. They are not owned by our cities. And some would say, who cares? It's a huge difference because the state manages them as uh, basically overflow pipes for their highway system. So they don't manage them to actually move us around in our region. They think of it more of, well, if I-5 fails, we got this barber over here and we'll just use that. So they manage it completely differently that way. So uh, there's been a lot of talk over the years. And again, it's a good governance thing. Uh, Maybe the region should own its arterial system in some way, shape or form or be funding the improvements that we want on them. So I think, you know, getting down into the um, the details is is where we're going to have to go to make this region function for the long term. Is that common that the Department of Transportation's own those arterials around, you know, in other states, or is it unique to Oregon or unique to a couple of states? For the most part, it's not unique. Huh. Uh, it is what happens when your state highway system suddenly becomes the arterials for a very major metropolitan area. So when you look to the Puget Sound region, you'll find that they struggled through the same time period in their, you know, in their growth curve. Uh, and they figured out ways to make that work uh, depending on which jurisdiction they were in. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's something that we have to tackle because that's where we can actually make people's lives a lot better yeah. in this region. And we need to have control over how we how we do that. That's probably, you know, a big thing that you hear in the news and, and, and grumbling through, you know, coworkers and friends and such is that the traffic is getting much heavier. And uh, when you mention the arterial aspect of it, it makes perfect sense. Making those run more smoothly mm-hmm. does give does give people options. A good portion of all of our trips may need to use a portion of the highway system. Right. But what needs to work for the majority of our trips, which are less than five miles and mm-hmm. don't use the highway system, yeah. is for that the rest of the system to work. Exactly. So transportation, land use planning, urban growth boundary is a big aspect of what Metro does. My corner of Metro, and mine is only a little part of this next uh, one, would be waste. Metro handles a lot of waste in the region at the transfer stations, Northwest Portland, Oregon City, and that's where all of our waste from our homes go, uh, handles hazardous waste. And uh, Metro also has a plan for that on what they want to do, you know, goals like the 2040 growth plan, but goals for managing waste and reducing waste. And curbside compost was introduced, I think it's now six years. And it's grown from Portland, which has been great to see other cities doing it. That's certainly a big piece of the puzzle what other pieces in there can help, you know, as we grow, keep that waste manageable? Well, if, if you think about it, it's the same um, in the waste stream as it is for the transportation network. If you don't need to take that vehicle trip and get stuck in congestion because you have another option, you might as well use it. So I think uh, where a lot of our energy is going to have to be focused for the future is how do we keep things out of the waste stream? Mm-hmm because we are not going to be able to afford uh, environmentally or uh, cost efficiency wise to continue to have uh, a growth in the amount of waste that we have per person in this region. 
So we have to figure out how to do that demand management, so to speak. So how do you how do you have a programs where you're actually forcing companies to do the life cycle um, that they have to take back the products that they create would be one way to look at it the other is just to keep it out of the waste stream at all many of the cities in this region have already banned bags there's a conversation about straws these things seem small but they're big right it's it's some of the the harder things to deal with and then then they get into the ocean and we all don't want that so I, I think just keeping it out of the waste stream altogether is the first the first uh, problem that we have to start tackling a little bit more, a bit more concerted effort. I think the second part of that is then if we can find more ways to recycle. And that's gotten harder with the restrictions overseas in China that happened January 1st because, you know, taking calls in my other job in the recycling information hotline is folks frustrated now that... They're throwing more away, and they can't recycle as much. And part of the conversation that we get to have, and people are pretty receptive to it, is thinking differently about what they're purchasing right? and and choosing different options. And it's neat to see businesses get on it as well. I mean, I just got a press release from New Seasons today where they, um, you know, they have the bag, five cents that you can get when you bring your own bag, but now they're doing it with containers. And so you see these great companies who are also trying to be part of the solution. Yeah, that, but, that's going to have to be the future, yeah. right? Uh, then you've got the question that then comes up because of China is how do we grow our own industry here for recycling? Mm-hmm. I think that's where Metro has just put out innovation grants, yeah. uh, which I'm very excited about and hope to see how we can grow that program. So I, I think that we're going to need to invest in our own local businesses to grow our own local jobs to take care of some of this problem. Now, we won't be able to do the whole thing. Uh, so we're going to have to find uh, partners as well to do that. The, the The next part is really what are the other innovations that we're just not looking at in terms of the future and uh, other options that we don't even know exist out there that there has to be a market. Yeah. <laughs> there has to be a market for. Do you think these conversations in other metro uh, sorry, regional governments are taking place. I mean, this conversation in particular seems unique to the Portland metro region, but is it happening in L.A.? Is it happening in Austin? Is it happening in Atlanta, Georgia? Um, Are folks as concerned about waste? I know they're concerned about growth and transportation. Are they as concerned about that? Having conversations with other people in the business, in the industry. I don't think they're any different. I just don't think that they have uh, as much opportunity to have a, a regional discussion, which, you know, it doesn't matter what Metro does. Yeah. We are there to force that conversation to happen over and over again until it's solved, which is holding us to our higher selves. In, in most regions, there's no one doing that. Mm-hmm. It would be an individual jurisdiction saying, I'm going to hold myself to a, a higher standard, but then getting impacted because somebody else didn't. Right. So we're leveling the playing field, whether it's whether it's transportation and growth management or whether it's uh, recycling or it's accessibility to the zoo for everybody. Mm-hmm. We are leveling that playing field. And I think that's the important aspect of what Metro, the, the issues with no boundaries, mm-hmm. right, to have that conversation. So I would just say it would be very much different conversation because it becomes, it becomes a c- competition between some of the cities in a, in a good way to see who can be more progressive about what they're doing. But then 
there's no one having that conversation with the other jurisdictions who aren't seeing it from an economic perspective. Mm-hmm. They're only seeing it from this other lens that they don't want to get involved in. Right, right. And they may not even have the resources to actually tackle the problem in a way that, that makes any any difference. So they, they feel helpless. Mm-hmm. And they may not feel may not, maybe, I don't know, may not feel as though their constituents are as receptive to mm-hmm. that sort of change. Yeah. And so taking it on would be even more uh, difficult. As you're about to walk into your job as Metro president in a couple of months, I know you're working on a lot of things uh, and getting up to speed. What do you see as, right now, looking from the outside in, Things that Metro does well and things that Metro can, can be better at uh, for the region. You know, I think the the beauty of Metro's community engagement from the very beginning has created this environment where they have been the forerunner in the region on being able to engage all communities as we diversify as a region and as we actually understand that we weren't doing as good a job, mm-hmm. maybe, as we could have done with everybody. Uh, so I think that, that that conversation is now playing out in different parts of the region. It's it's now having a domino impact of, oh, look what Metro's doing. Look how they're able to engage folks that were never at the table before, and look how they're able to bring their input in and actually make a difference. So I think that's amazing. I think the continued conversations around what are our shared regional outcomes and how do we all get there, even if it's on our own plan. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. And again, that's not something that any other region can actually go carry out. It's to say we're all trying to strive for these outcomes, whether it be clean air, clean water, um, the livability of our region. I think where our role is changing in the region, and I think we need to keep an eye out of what that means to have a role change in the region. We have always been the place that looks to the future, that brings everybody to the table to to deal with that thorny issue, come up with a plan to deal with the thorny issue. And there's a second part of that that we have been kind of haphazard at, Hmm. which is the implementation Hmm. of that action plan. And I think a lot of our partners are now asking us to step up and be part of the action plan such as the affordable housing bond measure, right? such as parks and open space, and such as transportation. So I think as we move into the future, we are going to need to be a much more transparent on the financial side. Uh, we are going to need to understand how we uh, manage risk in a different way, because we will be working with 24 cities and three counties that each have separate accounting systems and have separate ways of doing business with different expectations, but yet we still, as Metro, will need to meet the goals that were laid out for us. Yeah. So I think just stepping up our transparency and how, how we're making decisions and how we are managing the taxpayer dollar. And, and you just brought up a good point. I mean, the challenges of meeting the needs of everybody in these 24 cities and three counties, you can't please everybody all the time you have to find out what the greatest needs are in each community and come together. So we'll end on this. As you step into a four-year position as Metro President, what are, and we may have already covered them, I'm sure we have, uh, but the top goals that you want to to achieve that you think are, are, are achievable? 
I really do believe that this region wants to step up and put a dent in this housing crisis. Yeah. I think that that's the first step. I think second on the housing crisis is bringing all the jurisdictions back together and having a conversation about how we actually get market rate housing to market faster. We have put up a lot of barriers in our cities uh, to getting development done fast for whatever reason in the past. Uh, We can't wait for a lot of this market rate housing at this point. So how do we streamline that development without steamrolling community input? Mm -hmm. Because we still want to do that. But I still think that it's really important that it doesn't take six years right. to get a development down. We in don't really Calif- have six years. We don't have six years. And in California, it's 12 years right now. We don't want to go down that path. We have to figure out how we are welcoming and affordable, no matter whether you've lived here for 20, 40 generations or whether you're just moving here. That, that, that That's the housing. I'd say the second is really this transportation mm-hmm. issue that we've talked about extensively and focusing a laser focus on making the system work, not just an intersection or an interchange or one light rail. Mm-hmm. The third one that I really am excited about because there's there's kind of a path forward with partners through EPA and FEMA is doing a resiliency plan for the region. Hmm. Resiliency and climate change. What does that mean for Metro? It means that we should be looking at the the assets within the region that are the greatest risks and how we're going to actually step through and solve them. We all know that we have levees along the Columbia. We know why we have those levees because we had the Vanport floods. Those levees are coming due for improvement. If we don't do that, the majority of our industry in this region (laughs) is severely at risk. So including our airport, I mean, there's a lot at risk if those levees aren't looked at. We have bigger issues uh, that would take place with slides throughout the region. Mm -hmm. How do we start thinking about that? What are our bridges? What are our priority bridges that we need to make sure are on a plan? And what happens in each community? How do we actually uh, have neighborhood level type infrastructure to help in in case there's an emergency? How do we become more resilient as a people? Mm -hmm. Wow. You've got um, a few things to tackle, so you've got to get your rest up now before it all kicks in uh, next year. Thank you, Lynn, for um, taking some time with us today. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for my conversation with Lynn Peterson. If you've missed any of the previous podcasts, you can find them at our website at kink.fm. Be sure to like and subscribe to the Portland 50 podcast wherever you're listening. The Portland 50 is a podcast series celebrating King's 50th anniversary, and it's about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950.